here is the hope of conquering. The hope to conquer is not, all right, Covenant Life Church, go and do the best you can. The answer is conquering is accomplished by what we see in chapters 4 and 5. These two things go together. And where we left off last week was this broad overarching principle that the primary path to, to victory, to conquering, to overcoming temptation and compromise and coldness toward Christ, the primary path to victory in these ongoing battles is to look up and see the holiness of God, to look up and see the transcendent majesty of God. When God's people, you and I, are in the midst of temptation and persecution and suffering and our affections for Christ are cold, and most likely most of us in this room are battling one of those things this morning, or we have this week, the best remedy is not me standing up here telling you, go out this week and conquer. The best remedy we have is the revelation of God's character. The revelation of God's holiness. They're getting as near to him as we possibly can. Because our victory is not in us. Our victory is in him. So that was the first purpose of last week's message. To try to connect the dots between 1 through 3 and where we're going now. This is not now we're turning the page in something, a new section in Revelation. This is a continuation of the message to the seven churches, to every church in every age. This is how you conquer. And with that message, there was intended to be a, a hope for those who are burdened by the difficulty of temptation and overcoming sin. We all fall into that category. Man, we're, we're, we're tired and exhausted of trying to do it in our own strength and pulling up our bootstraps. And the encouragement is there is grace for us this morning. And then the last thing I was trying to do last Lord's Day was to, I called it erecting the scaffolding to help us most benefit from this text going forward. The fact of the matter is, I, like you, have been looking at Revelation chapter 4 for many years, and particularly for this study for the last couple of weeks, and I have not looked forward to preaching it at all. I've looked forward to the topic. I have, I have struggled to know how in the world the, my head spins, just like yours does. How do you make sense of it? How, how do you frame everything? And I have personally been helped by this if we pay attention to the prepositions. And that's kind of the, the outline we will follow this morning, the prepositions. In uh, Revelation chapter 4, the centerpiece of it all is a throne. And that was where we left off last week, the throne at the center. But then John speaks mostly of things in relation to that throne. And he uses his own language, talks about things on the throne, around the throne, from the throne, beside the throne, and towards the throne. And for lack of just a better way of handling it, that's how we're going to handle it. We're going to focus on the throne, and then we're going to see all the stuff that's going on based on those prepositions. And then the second thing we have to remember as we look at this together, and we'll read the text after this. Revelation 4 is not a photograph. It is not a picture. It is not to be taken literally. There is not a literal throne. It is a, a rendering. It's a vision. If we take it literally, then we all of a sudden have to explain every literal detail to find a deeper meaning where, actually, I think that takes away from 
what chapter 4 is intended to draw our attention to. We become so obsessed with identifying, oh, what's that creature? What elder? What's this? What's that? The other? We're going to talk about those things, but we're not going to obsess over them because the one thing we're supposed to be obsessed with in chapter 4 is the one on that throne. And, and insofar as we, we get caught up in these other things, I think Satan is pleased. Hey, study the book of Revelation all you want. Yeah, y'all yeah, talk about those elders. Y'all talk about those uh, four living creatures. You talk about the ox and the man. And, yeah, enjoy, enjoy. So long as you never get to what it's all in, in, in circled around. And so this morning, we want to be very clear. We want to let the vision speak to our imaginations. We want the vision to be allowed to just take our breath away. I am in no position to be able to explain everything here. And anyone who says they can, you should run from. What we need here is just to be, have our breath taken away by the vision, the majesty that's on display by all that's going on around the king on this throne. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their, their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. We must. Heavenly Father, we confess that, Lord, this passage leaves our heads spinning, trying to take in the, the multitude of images that we see here, the beauty, the light, and the power, and the sounds. Father, more than anything, more than answering the curiosities of our mind. We pray this morning that you would awaken, awaken our souls by your spirit to see something of what it was John was granted to see. And Lord, we pray that the greatness of all that you are that's on display here would become so clear to us and it would achieve its life-transforming intent in our lives this morning. 
Lord, we are the seven churches. We have our own struggles, our own weaknesses, our own battles. We're fighting with compromise and temptations to greed and envy and jealousy and lust and pride and all kinds of different things. So, let us see you for who you are. That we might worship you in the way that you deserve. So that we will be empowered to conquer in a way we've never been able to do on our own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Exodus 33, Moses prayed five incredible words. Please show me your glory. That was his earnest plea there at the top of Mount Sinai. And God's reply to him was, Moses, bless your heart. Man can't see this face and live. You would melt like wax before the sheer holiness of who I am, the majesty. You don't know what you ask. If I showed you my face, Moses, you would die instantly. So God took Moses and placed him in the cleft of the rock and allowed him to see merely the backward parts, as it were, of the glory of God as he passed by. Not the face, the backward part. And lest we think, oh, that's, man, that's kind of antithetical. You know, that's, uh. When Mo Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai, having spent that time in the presence of God, and seeing merely the backside, the part that he could see and live. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was blazing a blazing inferno of light that even those down at the bottom of the mountain were afraid to come near him. He had to veil his face. He had to cover it. It radiated with such majesty. Such is the effect of gazing into the sheer glory of the holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. That is the effect. We are given a sight of the glory of God that far exceeded anything that Moses saw when he saw the backside. What we're looking into this morning is the sheer greatness of all that God is. And there is a wonderful grace here, wonderful opportunity for this vision to change us just as it changed Moses. Listen, Moses came off that mountaintop and he had a mess he was dealing with down there. That didn't change. He was changed. And same as what we need. It's what the seven churches need. It's what we need. As John looks up, he's confronted with a breathtaking, breathtaking vision of the triune God. And as we said, this is the only prescription for conquering. There is no way to conquer outside of this. You and I, probably we could go around the room and talk about our own personal battles, our own personal struggles, and we can talk about things that have worked for us. And I, I don't want to undermine those things. I'm not suggesting that, that you haven't come up with something, but I would ask, has it made you perfect? We tend to be able to get through in the short term, short-term victory, short-term successes. 
Jesus said it's to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. I will grant you a seat where I am, and so on and so forth. It's this vision of God as he is that is the only prescription, the only remedy for overcoming and conquering our dullness of love for Christ, our temptation to sin, greed, envy, jealousy, lust, pride. You fill in the blank. This passage stretches our imagination probably more so than anything else you'll read in your life. It tests our capacity to understand who God is. It reveals the limitation of our human language. John is doing his best. He is seeing the radiance of the glory of God, and he is doing his best to put it into words for us. Yet over and over, we're going to see, he keeps saying, it looks like. It's, it's like this. It's like that. Why is he having to use those kinds of similes and metaphors? Because there is not human language to put into the brilliance of what he sees. He's doing the best he can. You see, it is impossible for humans to grasp the infinite, the glory, the fullness of who he is. But don't be dismayed by that. That's where worship begins. <laughs> when you're at that place where I, I, I don't know what to say. I see him. I, holy, I, I think I know what that term means, but even that, I could spend the rest of my life unfolding what that is, the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, the beauty of Christ. Even trying to define those things, I come up woefully short, inadequate of who God really is. John is seeing a vision of God incomparably sublime, incontestably sovereign, and he is doing his best to put it in language so that, hey, we can benefit from it as well. Worship is the remedy offered to the seven churches. It sounds so simple, I get it. Especially if, man, you came in here this morning with real major heartache and suffering and temptation and failure and affliction. I totally get how off my rocker this sounds. Worship is God's remedy offered. Looking to him and the reflex of that. A heart so stirred, so humbled, so seeing that vision changes how I see everything else. And I worship him. This is God's remedy to combat the stress, the anxiety, the, the fear of oncoming persecution that the seven churches would have been dealing with in the Roman Empire. I wonder how many of us have read Revelation 4 and 5 before and thought, I can't get over how practical this is. <laughs> probably few of us. I, I haven't. I'm only now beginning to see that. We probably had an enchanting view of God, and we may have had a time of worship, but how many of us have seen, this is just so practical. This is so real to where I am today. Most of us have never connected those dots. But that's what John intends, to look up at this throne, and we may be worried, concerned, fretting, failing, struggling, afflicted, but we look up and we have a deity who has not a care in the world, not a concern in the world, not an anxiety in the world, a God on his throne who is accomplishing everything he's intended to accomplish before the foundation of the world, in the world, and in your life, and in mine. 
We look up on this throne. We don't see a sovereign who is pacing the floor. Riddled. Oh, my goodness. Roman Empire. Didn't see that coming. Oh, my goodness. Job loss. Oh, my goodness. Sickness. I didn't anticipate this one. Man, you look up into this throne room. He's not pacing the floor. We see a picture of our triune God ruling and reigning even over his enemies, our enemies, our afflictions, our sicknesses. And yes, that may raise a whole lot of questions for you. But this is who God is. First of all, very quickly, on the throne, we're using the prepositions. John, in the spirit, obeys the command of the Lord that we saw last week in verse 1. Come up here. John, you've been down among the seven churches. You've been, you, you see, you, you are the seven church. Now, that's, that's still going on down there. Now, simultaneously, same time, come up here. Come and see, and I'm going to show you what must take place. I'm showing you what's going on right now. After all this, after this first vision, if you've seen all this here, come up here. I'm showing you what's taking place right now. After all that, that horizontal stuff you've been looking at, now vertical. And he says, verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. If you came here hoping I was going to identify those jewels for you and tell you, you're going to be disappointed. Let me draw your attention to some things that are worth noting. John never names the figure on the throne. He doesn't use a personal pronoun. That may not be overwhelming to you. I found that fascinating. He doesn't name the one. Maybe he expects us to know because the voice who called him up, maybe he expects, but he doesn't name it. Also, there are no explicit features about the one on the throne. Only analogies and metaphors and colors and textures. And in fact, John never really sees God. He sees merely God's transcendent majesty. He sees the, the, the overflow, if you will, of all that God is on display. And his descriptions are wonderfully restrained, I think. You know, we live in a, a lot of people like to over-exaggerate things. You know, I, I, we probably all, to one degree or another, tend to do that on things we're passionate. We over-exaggerate. And there would have been opportunity here for John to over-exaggerate. But I can't help but wonder, did he have the second commandment in mind? Because he doesn't over... In fact, he's, he's unusually restrained in his description of what he sees on the throne. I mean, this is your chance. Everything to, to, to really lay it out for us and, and, and really spend chapters and chapters and chapters telling, what did you see on the throne? But he's very quick. He's very restrained. You know, the second commandment, thou shalt not make any image or graven likeness, anything in heaven above or, or in the earth beneath. Or maybe it's John's way of saying, guys, I've got a glimpse. And don't get too close. This is not just like you and I, just a little bit better. I'm bringing you as close as I'm comfortable getting. I'm getting you as close, but don't get too close. That was kind of the warning there at Mount Sinai, right? You can come this far, but no further. That was for their good. That was for their protection. 
And I think there's a practical word of warning for us. It's possible for us to study Revelation chapter 4 with a fine microscope. You know, we're about to get into the, uh, the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And with that fine microscope, we want to get as close as we can. That's the temptation here. And I want, I want to know, what, what is this? What is that? And then what's that old saying? You, you, you miss the, the forest for the trees. You get too close and you miss really what the whole thing's about. Some things can really only be appreciated from a great distance. And I think that's kind of what John is doing for us here. He's giving us the panorama. He says, just take it in. It's the fullness of all this that speaks to the wonder and the glory of the one on that throne. He does tell us about the appearance of certain translucent stones. There's great debate on the interpretation of those stones. Most are in the agreement individually. They don't really. They're inconsequential. But taken collectively... These stones represent God's majesty, his sovereignty. And we take that because later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, these same stones appear and they are in the context of God's sovereign, majestic rule in the new heavens and new earth. It's it's undeniable that's what it means there. So we let scripture interpret scripture and we're going to bring that in here and say, this is not speculation, this is not me, I think it's this. Here's what it clearly means here. There's no reason it doesn't mean the same thing here. As John is looking on the throne and he sees the appearance of certain translucent stones, collectively those stones represent the majesty, the sovereignty, the glory of our God on his throne. That's what John sees. And then we have something, the, the appearance, a, a rainbow that had, had a, the appearance of an emerald. Man, we all know what a rainbow is. I doubt we've ever seen one that looks like an emerald. So what in the world is going on here? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to try to I'm not going to try to connect dots whether or not there. I would guess that most likely there is a an intention to remind us of where have we seen a rainbow previously? God's covenant with Noah. God's covenant promise made with Noah. When after the worldwide flood, he put the rainbow in the sky and said, out of mercy, I will never, ever destroy the earth again by flood. The rainbow speaks of God's mercy. And why would that be significant? Because we're fixing to come upon some pretty weighty stuff about God and his judgment when we get to chapter 6, 7, 8, and ongoing. And what a wonderful thing here before we get into these judgments of God. Some pretty intense stuff that the rainbow on display there on the throne tempers that, if you will. That yes, our God is a God of wrath, a God of justice, a God of judgment, but he's simultaneously, he tempers that. He's a God of mercy, a God of grace to those who conquer, to those who persevere, to those who are his own. I think it's a wonderful picture here uh, of Just God on his throne. It's not a photograph, but it's simply just bringing us to this is all this going on down here, seven churches, all our struggle, all of our battle. Look up and your God, he's not scared. He's not he's not pacing the floor. He's not lost control. He's majestic. He's sovereign. And yes, we're going to see 
God's judgments upon his enemies, but he's a God of mercy. And you may be living in a day where the Roman Empire, man, they've, they have a certain amount of power on this earth, or you may be living in the 21st century where you pick what the ruling power is today, and it feels like, man, there's no hope. Your sin nature, it feels like it can't be overcome. Satan feels like it can't be overcome. The world feels like it can't be overcome. Just like the Roman Empire, they have a certain amount of authority. (laughs) But ultimate power and authority and sovereignty over those things belongs to God. Do you see how that would encourage the seven churches and how it should encourage us? Just a vision of who God is. Christ wants his seven most struggling churches, all imperfect churches, to look up and see the majesty of this God and to worship. What do you do with this God? You don't follow him around uh, away in your brain. You don't just say, well, that's neat. I got something new to think about. You fall down before this one. This one who is sovereign and in control and majestic over all things. This God of mercy. You know, one of the fundamental realities of worship. It's something that I was thinking about even when we were singing here just a few moments ago. Not, not an indictment against you, more me. It's a lack of wonder. Where there's no wonder, we can move our mouths and we can sing songs that are on a screen. But where there's no wonder, there won't be worship. Where God is just someone that we have figured out, and I've got theological categories for him. If we've got God figured out, our God is way too small, and it's no wonder we're not excited about worshiping him. Again, I'm not throwing that on you. That's what I have to deal with in my own heart. If you've lost your capacity to wonder at the infinite dimensions of God on display here, You'll never worship right, and I won't either. But here's the catch, and here's where we've got to connect these dots. If we don't worship with wonder, that's God's prescription for conquering and overcoming. Where there is no worship, there is no conquering. Well, there is no wonder at who God is so that I look unto him and in such wonder, the things of earth become strangely dim. Now, when I walked in here this morning, they were far from dim. When I walked in here this morning, they were heavy, burdensome, weighty. I was in bondage to them. But do you see how The wonder of who God is, is the remedy, the prescription for conquering. Not because that he changes those situations, he changes us. And whereas previously we were lost in wonder over our sufferings, our afflictions, our trials, we've all been there. It's transferred over into our wonder at him. Now, 
I'm able to conquer and overcome those temptations, those afflictions, those compromises with the world, that coldness toward Christ. Remember what Jesus said, I see your works, but you've lost your first love. You're not doing it for me. Look up. I don't know how far I'm going to get this morning. It's not promising at the moment, but what I'm trying to do, and forgive me if I'm frustrating you, I am trying to show you how practical Revelation 4 and 5 are. Because it's true for me. I've never seen it as practical. I've seen it as a worship text, and it is, but not connected to this is God's answer to the seven churches, to you and I in our struggle. You know, we often come to church or we hear people say things like, I just, I'm looking for something practical. I want to hear something practical. I want to hear some steps. I want to hear this, 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 and this. Give me something I can take out of here and use. And John says, hey, you got it. I'll give you the most practical thing ever. Behold your God. Look unto him. In a world that we struggle through, in a world that sometimes doesn't make sense, in a world that man, we just we cry ourselves to sleep at night because it, the world just feels so weighty and overwhelming. It feels like this is reality. John says, no, this is reality. God is the one true reality. And the vision of God on his throne is eminently practical because it restores to our value system what is real, what is ultimate, where our hope is. And suddenly, by beholding him, the things of earth grow strangely dim. Well, that's on the throne. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 24 thrones around this throne, and these 24 elders sitting on them. Well, who are these elders? That's, I guess, the question. Well, the text tells us we want to be biblical. They're clothed in white garments. They've got golden crowns on their heads. When we combine this with what we see in chapter 5, they are constantly prostrate, prostra prostrating themselves down before the holiness of God, throwing themselves down before God day and night in worship. We see elsewhere these crowns that we're told they have on their head, they throw down before him. They sing hymns of praise. And then in chapter 5, we'll get there at some point. We're told they have a bowl in their hands that contains the prayers of the saints for God. Unusual language. And so the question, and curious minds want to know, who are they? It's all speculation. Some say they're another species of exalted uh, angels. You got your seraphim, you got your cherubim. 
And then you got these things, 24 things around the throne. The argument against that is nowhere else in Scripture do we see angels called elders. So that's, that is something that has to be taken into consideration. That doesn't throw the whole thing out by any means, but that is a curious thing. Some suggest that these are exalted Old Testament saints. Uh, you remember that David organized the temple into 24 orders of priests. So maybe that's reflective of Old Testament saints around the throne. Others suggest... They're exalted New Testament saints, those who've given their lives for Christ and how they've earned a reward of this place around the throne. What are we to make of it? Again, in Revelation, we want to make sure you can get so close, you miss the whole thing. I think the key to their identity is in their number. The key to their identity is in the number 24. And at least where I stand today. I think it's a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the church in the New Testament. These 24 elders are representative of the entire community of the saved, Old Testament and New Testament. It's not an accident that there's 12 tribes in Israel and then there's 12 apostles. That's, that's not just... That's a neat trivia question. No, there's intention behind that. There's a connection between those two things. So I think these 24 are indeed representative of the church, the true church of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And I am inclined to think that they are angels of some sort, of some sort, a specific order. And we'll see why in the coming weeks based upon their function, some of the things we see them doing, some of the language they use in worship. So I think they're angelic representatives who, surround, who represent us and our brothers and sisters in Christ in centuries before us and in God tarries so, you know, centuries after us. They're before the throne, but let, much more important than who they are is what they're doing. They're, they are night and day before the throne of God worshiping. And as our representatives, they invite us, the church of Jesus Christ today, Covenant Life Church today, to join in similar praise. Here's what we know about the elders. I'm less convinced about their identity. I've just played out. Here's my best guess on who I think they are. And I'm pretty stuck on that for the time being. Next year I may change that. But for now, it's where I'm stuck. But here's what I'm convinced of, and here's what, they are obsessed with the one on the throne. They are mesmerized by the one on the throne. They can do nothing but worship him. And as our representatives, they're laid out before us, seven churches, Covenant Life Church. This is what you're supposed to be doing too. Yes, we were created to worship, but there's also a practical means to that. Worship is also the pathway to victory, to conquering. Worshiping, being captivated, mesmerized, obsessed by the one on the throne, by his son, Jesus Christ, by the person and work of the Holy Spirit, our triune God, beholding him. The things of earth become strangely dim. We're able to conquer. And this is what we should be. 
I actually had a whole sermon that was going to get through all of these prepositions. And I'm going to have to stop here. We will pick up next week. What's our takeaway thus far? Chapter 4 and 5, these two chapters go together. It's a magnificent vision of our God and who he is. If we only acknowledge from afar attributes of God we see on display and a recognition here and we move on, we've wasted it. You can esteem chapter 4 as a worship chapter and never get to the heart of really what it's about. This is grace. This is our God telling us to those who conquer and are victorious and overcome, I've got this promise for you eternally. God, I can't. So come up here. You can't because you fixed your gaze down here. And maybe a few moments on a Sunday you'll look up or maybe for five or ten minutes on a, in the morning time you'll look up. Come up here and cast your vision upon me. See the one who's on the throne. Take a look at just that first set of those. We're looking at concentric circles around the throne, those 24 elders, representative of the church. Look at what they're doing night and day. They get it. They understand. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to plug it in here. You think these 24 elders are going to be tempted to idolatry? You think these 24 elders who are obsessed with the one on the throne, who are mesmerized by him, who are worshiping, in fact, later on in the text we're going to see, they, they throw themselves down at him only to get back up so they can throw themselves down again to get up, to be th they're like those weeble wobbles when we were kids. Do you think if Satan comes and tempts one of these 24 elders, hey, elder, temptation to greed, you can have this. Temptation to envy, jealousy, lust, pride. Hey, why don't you turn away from that? Look at this material good I've got over here. You think they're going to go for it? Not in a million years. Why? Because they've fixed their gaze on him. They know his value, his worth. They know who he is. They are obsessed with him. And this is the point for us. How will we conquer and overcome those same sins and those temptations to idolatry? By worshiping the one on the throne. Marveling wondering at the God that he is. Forgive me for this is kind of a sloppy ending place. But this is where we end.